Father, we agree with those prayers and do, in fact, want to lift up our nation and the sharp divide in ideology and in thinking and attitudes. And we know the reasons for it. It's described in this chapter that we're looking at. But we desire that uh, you would work revival uh, in our country. We know that that's really the only solution. And we desire to be faithful witnesses in this culture and do what you desire us to do as individuals. Commit our time to you, desiring that your word would in fact touch our hearts and move our entire being to desire to walk more obediently with you. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the book of Romans. I'm hoping to conclude this little portion, not all the way to verse 20, but at least our discussion on uh, total depravity. Even though it's a doctrine we shy away from, churches don't teach it anymore, or a lot of them don't. Too depressing, right? But I think you need to understand it because this gives you insight into the world we live in. This is what mankind is like. This is reality. And even in Scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, there are a lot of things, you know, we look back, particularly we think that we're so much better, so much more more advanced, that uh, how could they do those things? So much, yeah, so much well better educated. How could... How could David be so tempted? You know, he's at the pinnacle. How could he fall for Bathsheba and all that issue there? Or how could Israel be so kind of hard, blind and hard-headed and reject what God had done right after the Exodus or later in their history? How could they reject God who was in their midst and, you know, all these issues? You look ahead into the book of Revelation during the millennial kingdom where Satan is bound and, in fact, conditions are somewhat ideal. Nature is radically transformed in the millennial kingdom. And what do you have at the end? You have a rebellion. How do you explain that? Well, the only way all of these things are explained is because of the reality of the sin nature that not only the unbeliever possesses and only that is all that he has, but also those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ, totally cleansed, totally forgiven, but yet we have the old nature. Mary Lee. I was thinking it really is bad news and good news. You know, you have a very, very serious disease, but there is a cure for it. Yes, absolutely. And so that's, it's, and you can't deal with the, the news about your very serious disease. It's depressing to know you have it, but it's a huge praise to know that there is a cure that there is a cure and that's the next section in the book of romans that we'll focus in on probably not next week but a week after that so we're in the depressing portion of romans but the reality that we need to understand in order not only to appreciate but to appropriate what uh, we find in the next section, and for those of us that are believers, to be able to accurately describe to the unbeliever the mess that he is in. So we're looking down at the bottom of the outline there on the screen, the guilt of all mankind, verses 9 through 20. Paul is wrapping it all up. 
We've seen the scriptural proof, or we're in that portion, proof of depravity. And Paul goes to the ultimate authority, the Word of God. The Word of God in the first century was Old Testament, so he's dealing with biblical passages in that to prove the guilt of all of humanity. We've looked at verses 10 through 12. The sinful character is first described in terms of the exegetical outline. I've pulled out from that an outline within an outline to kind of emphasize this idea of total depravity. We'll get into that in a moment. But we're looking at an ultimate courtroom setting that begins in verse 18. You could consider that using this analogy An opening statement, all mankind is under the wrath of God, essentially. Why is mankind under the wrath of God? In other words, condemned, and ultimately, uh, when everything's worked out, under his wrath. But you can see that wrath even in present tense time. The reason is there's evidence that convicts mankind, so he's going to lay that out, 19 through the end of the chapter, focusing on all of humanity, and more specifically, Gentiles, the evidence of the Jews, chapter 2. So he's laying out the evidence. He gives a little brief argument of the defense, deals with the objections that might be raised, particularly in the Jewish mind. And now in verse 9, he lays out the final charge. Jew and Gentile, he's already said. In fact, he reminds us of what he said concerning the guilt, and he indicts them. And if there's any question, he's going to give something of a final proof, 10 through 18. We've gone over that by way of analogy. We've been talking about total depravity. Biblically, it's not as evil as one can be. That's not the theological idea. The idea is that we are wholly inclined toward evil continually. This is just our nature. This is our inclination Without the restraints that God has also built in, not only to culture, but into mankind himself, God has restrained and put the Holy Spirit in the world to restrain sin. He's given us government. He's given us families, conscience, all of these areas to restrain what we are naturally inclined towards. And we are naturally inclined to evil continually. So that's the idea of depravity. And you see it, we've been emphasizing, in children. You don't teach them the word no. It's ingrained. You don't teach them to resist. It's ingrained. You don't teach them. Exactly. You don't teach them to beat their siblings. It's somewhat ingrained because we're wholly inclined to evil continually. We're totally unable to do anything good spiritually. That's total depravity. We can do good, but it's always self-centered or self-serving. We can do kind acts, but oftentimes the motivation is not the best motivation. Thirdly, it has no ability to gain anything from God. So we have nothing to offer to earn anything in return from God. We are utterly dependent on what he has provided. We accept it simply by faith and faith alone. And another description of total depravity is our total nature. That's why we call it total depravity. 
Our total nature has been affected every area. The key passage is this Romans passage. That's why I've got an outline within an outline to show that all of these different areas, in fact, one of them is omitted in this passage, and I mentioned it last time. You could even include our consciences. They're described as defiled. They're described as damaged. They're described in some cases as seared. So our consciences are damaged by sin as well. And on the outline sheet, we've been talking about spiritually. 310 implies it, doesn't state it directly. But if you go to Ephesians 2, describes the spirit as dead. We're alive, we can do things, we can speak, we can act, but we are dead. You are dead in your sins and in your trespasses, following the course of the world, etc., so spiritual deadness, our spirits are affected, our heart is affected. That's also implied in 3.10, Jeremiah 17.9 is one of the clearest passages. Who can understand it? It is desperately wicked. That's our hearts, the human heart. Jesus describes it in Mark 7, 20-23, everything that comes out of the heart, the evil things, comes as a result of an evil and depraved heart. Our intellects are affected. There's none who understands. Now, there's lots of understanding, but it's not understanding in terms of how to correct the situation. I mean, you can have a PhD and have understanding. In fact, Romans 1 says all men have a revelation of God. So we have an understanding of God but it doesn't necessarily lead to a cleansing of the mind or a renewing of the mind. And in Ephesians 4, we have another description of the darkness of the mind. So sin has affected the intellect. We don't see reality. We have a different worldview than what the biblical worldview presents to us. So our intellect is affected. We've seen all of these things. We also see in verse 11, none seeks after God. In other words, that's our will or our volition. We don't seek after God. I tried to make the point, any seeking that we do takes God to take the initiative, just like with Adam and Eve. They leave, they flee, they're hiding. God takes the initiative to ask questions, to draw them back. John 6 says, no one comes to the Father unless he draws them. God takes the initiative to draw us to himself, convict us of sin, and in that context, now we begin to think, well, maybe I need to consider God. Maybe I need to think about it. Maybe I need to pursue that. And when we have the illumination of what Christ has done, then we are in a position to be able to trust, but it's all God working within us. So our volitions do not seek after God on their own. Depravity is such that the choice that we always make is one away from God. So that's where we've been. Beginning in verse 13, he's going to focus on the outward. In other words, that's what we are inwardly, 10 through 12 in Romans. That's our character. That's our nature. So internally, our spirits, our hearts, our intellect, our volition, all of that is internal. Next, he's going to deal 13 through 17, what comes out from that internal, that's our sinful conduct. 
So let's take a look at beginning in verse 13. This is the whole sentence, long sentence. Within that sentence, Paul pulls out quotations or summaries of quotes from the Old Testament, kind of a list of passages that reinforces these ideas that he's presenting concerning the nature of man. So we looked at verse 13 last time. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. That comes out of, a, of, of the psalm that we looked at. Verse 14, we'll pick up there. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Semicolon. Just stringing these together. Semicolon at the end of verse 13. Skip to verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Comma. Still part of the sentence. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Very depressing. Very dark. And then verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known, period. Long sentence. So we've also looked at the whole concept of their throat is an open grave. In other words, starting from the inward, working outward, tongues coming close to the outward part, keep deceiving, poison of asps is under their lips, so already on the external whose mouth, in other words, that that is visible, is full of cursing and bitterness. That deals with what? What is affected by sin? The imagery is that of communication or speech. So not only is our heart affected, our spirits, our intellect, our volition, but fifthly, communication, what comes out of our character. Or you might say our speech, that's verse 13. We looked at it. We also saw a very dark picture in James. It's like a fire that sets a whole forest aflame, tiny fire that spreads throughout the entire forest. It's another image that James uses to describe the tongue. So it's destructive. Now we ended on a positive note last time. In the book of Proverbs, the positive aspect that can come out of the new nature or from the spirit. We can bring healing also with communication and with our tongues. So, we've also talked about the contrast so that we not stay depressed. And the book of Romans is going to deal with this, but we want to jump ahead and apply it. Because we have the old nature, but we also, in Christ, have the solution to it. And it's only in Christ that everything can be reversed. Not immediately, not at the moment we trust in him, but the process can begin at that moment. Such that we have a new nature. And what chapters 6 through 8 are going to describe is how do we now live differently. That's sanctification. And the essence of that is living life in the new nature in the power of the Spirit. So the new nature, the Spirit is given new life, is regenerated. Until we trust in Christ, we're dead. The moment we trust in Christ, we have given a new nature with eternal life. So Christ deals with the Spirit. Our heart can be now soft or tender towards God, responsive which involves our volition as well. Our intellect 
in Ephesians can be renewed. In other words, we can learn new things, we can adopt a new worldview, but it's only through studying scripture that we rethink everything. And in that context, that's that same Ephesians 4 passage where he describes the darkness, and it's by understanding biblical principles and scripture itself that we can renew our thinking, see things differently from God's perspective. Our volition can now be empowered to obey through the Holy Spirit. We are resistant. We are rebellious. We want our own way. We want to go our own uh, direction. But now we can be empowered to make different choices. And our communication, we ended last time, we can speak truth. We can bring healing in our communication and other things as well. So, verse 14. This kind of continues with the idea of communication whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Without restraints, without the Holy Spirit putting limits on our sin, our sin ends up in cursing and bitterness. In other words, our speech, negative attitudes, negative choices, and uh, outbursts in terms of our relationships with other. Full of cursing, uh, the idea of anger is there. Again, it's not stated explicitly, but uh, you'll notice on the outline sheet, uh, not only is our speech affected, but it affects what else? Depravity affects our emotions. Our emotions are not what they would be if we had no sin. And some people have a problem in that area. They lose control of their emotions and cursing and bitterness. Bitterness is a part of our emotions. So depravity also affects our emotions. The point I'm making here, this is what depravity is like. It affects every aspect of our being. In fact, you can't think of an aspect that is not affected by sin And that's the concept, the biblical and theological concept of total depravity. Every aspect affected, cursing and bitterness. Now, verse 14 comes out of Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. That's the bitterness aspect. So Paul is kind of summarizing or paraphrasing, you might say. And the psalm even goes further, under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Now you have synonymous parallelism there. You have two lines, each line communicating the same idea using different words or different images. So it just reinforces the first line, second line reinforces the first. So a mouthful of curses and deceit and oppression And under the tongue is the outworking of that bitterness and anger and oppression that is residing in the unbelieving heart. But we've also been emphasizing we still have the potential in the old nature. So verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So we have a series of quotes. We saw in 310, that's probably a summary Maybe a summary of everything that follows, but more specifically, probably a summary of uh, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, because it captures the first verse of the psalm, or at least an element of it, and then it concludes with 
There's not one, not even one, that comes out of the psalm. And he seems to be capturing the whole idea. And then in verse 11, it's portions of verse 2 that are quoted. And in verse 12, verse 3. And in verse 13, that comes out of two places. We saw that last time, Psalm 5, verse 9, and Psalm 40, verse 3. We've gone over all of that. Now in verse 14, we have Psalm 10, verse 7. So what Paul is doing is stringing together passages, sometimes from the life of David. Sometimes it's not clear who the psalmist is. But so far, all of them have been out of the Psalms. And that brings us to the emotions. And other passages that indicate the same thing. It doesn't give the source of these things, but we have, in fact, somebody look up Ephesians 4, 31, and who wants to do Colossians 3, 8, just to reinforce. Craig, why don't you do Ephesians? Connie, go ahead and get Colossians. 4.31, now this is addressed, that same chapter that deals with the darkening of our minds and also encourages renewing. Another thing, part of the process of renewing our minds is the process of dealing with emotions. And it's the positive aspect in terms of prohibitions or uh, words in terms of correction. 431 Ephesians, you got it? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is addressed to the believer. We still have the potential of all of that. But just as we renew our minds, we need to renew and reestablish a godly emotional state. So this is part of dealing with our walk in Christ. Colossians 3.8, very similar. You must also put off all the anger. Anger, wrath, those are emotional outbursts. Go ahead. Malice, blasphemy, language out of Okay, speech in both those passages as well. So we revise or renew our speech, deal with our emotions, bring them under the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. I can't remember the last one. What is it? Faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, love, starting off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dealing with emotions. Those can come out of the Holy Spirit. That's where we gain the ability and the power to be able to have a stable emotional state or a godly emotional state where we can express joy and love and all of the (laughs) others. So our emotions are affected. But... It's only the believer that has the power to reinstate our emotions such that they are pleasing to God. So they can be redirected in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't, I've been emphasizing, we don't want to reform the old nature. What does Paul say, jumping ahead in Romans 6? We've been saying it over and over. That's why I need to repeat it. Hmm? It's dead. You can't fix it. Can't fix it. Don't try. Put it to death. Smash it. Smash it. (laughs) Put it to death. Now we have the new potential to live in the power of the Spirit, but it's through the new nature. 
So we don't try to prop up or reform the old nature. We're jumping ahead to chapter 6. What happens when you try to do that? You end up in chapter 7. Still <laughs> You end up in chapter 7, and what does Paul do? He's giving his own experience, and if you look at that passage, there's several statements that he makes. The very thing I want to do, what? I do not do. The things I hate, that's the things that what? I do. That's living in the power of the old nature. So you have to live in chapter 8. Chapter 7 is I, 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 I. I think something like 22 times. Chapter 8, you don't have I. Maybe once, I think. I can't remember. But what do you have? The Spirit. The Spirit. The Spirit. Power of the Spirit. That's the key. So we don't want to reform our emotions. We don't want to reform our speech. Put a band-aid on it. We want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is the positive. This is the encouragement for you and I as believers. The unbeliever that is the focus of this passage has no power to do any of that. He first needs new life. He first needs regeneration. And this passage tells us what the old nature, what the unbeliever only possesses is that old nature. So he has no capacity to bring anything to God that uh, gains merit before him. So, 15. Now we're going to move to feet. We dealt with what comes out of our mouth. Now he's going to give a whole set of new images dealing with walking or what? What do these image picture? Relationships. Mm, more than that, more broadly... What does the outline sheet say? What's number number eight? Oh, our bodies, yeah. Our bodies and our actions. Now, it's not specifically the body, but it does refer to body parts here. So I'll give you some other scriptures that indicate our physical bodies are affected. Now, I don't have to convince you of that because I see a lot of gray hair. (laughs) I see other signs of degeneration. Wrinkles. (laughs) We won't mention them. We'll let uh, Mary Lee do that. So their feet, their feet are swift to do what? Godly things? No, the other extreme, shed blood. Here's the imagery. This is what my lifestyle is like. This is what I do as I walk the world. I kill people. Now, Jesus, what does he do in uh, the Sermon on the Mount? He equates murder with what? Anger. In other words, that's the roots of killing people. But this is the end product. Remember, the depravity can work itself out such that it has an end product in a manson without any restraints. Hmm? Or the kid in Florida. That's right. Young kid in Florida, exactly. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's depravity. So in this context, now we're going to skip, beginning in verse 15, Isaiah 59, verse 7, and verse 16 will also include verse 7, and then 17 is going to come out of Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. So series of quotes. Here's Isaiah. 
And again, a series of descriptive phrases or clauses, you might say. Now, in that context, in the Isaiah context, he's describing Israel. He's describing God's people here. They have an old nature. They have that deadness. So verse 7, their feet, that's directly what Paul pulls out of Isaiah 59, their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Pretty much a close quotation. Most of the quotes in the New Testament are not word for word necessarily, but oftentimes they capture the essence, and that's what Paul is saying here. So you have a statement, their feet run to evil. Paul quotes it, their feet are swift to shed blood. They hasten to shed innocent blood, very similar. Now we have a series of parallel thoughts. That's synonymous parallelism. The major feature of Hebrew poetry is not rhyme. The major feature of Hebrew poetry is what? I just told you. Parallelism. Not necessarily synonymous. In this case, it's synonymous parallelism. But parallelism in general. Look for parallelism in Hebrew poetry, and it will help you to understand what the writer is communicating. Hebrew poetry also utilizes a large measure of images or figurative speech. Those are the two major characteristics. You have that here. So you have parallel lines. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood, semicolon. Another line, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Same idea. In other words, evilness or expressions of evil. The result of a life or a lifestyle. So the second line reinforces the first. It affects not only our feet and our walking or running, but our thoughts. They're thoughts of iniquity. And then you have another parallel line. You have a comma. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. This is the results. The end product. Now, Paul quotes that in verse 16. Devastation and misery are in their paths rather than highways. In other words, the way that they go or the directions they take, the choices that they make. See the imagery? The imagery is walking along a path or down the highway, walking down the interstate. And in that, it's actions. It's what we are doing, the direction we're headed. And in verse 15, The direction we're headed is ending in destruction. Devastation and destruction is that's the direction we're heading in terms of our life. Unless we take a new path. Unless we trust in Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, another clause, you might say, that reinforces the prior ones. They do not know the way of peace. There's no peace in their path. There's just destruction and misery. The opposite of misery is peace, at least in this context. They don't know that. In other words, they don't know how to repair relationships. The only thing they have is destroyed relationships. There's no peace there. There's no inner contentment. There's frustration. This is in the the Isaiah passage. And there is no justice in their tracks. Injustice. Self-centeredness, usually. 
another parallel passage. So we have a series of evil actions all put in a row dealing with what happens in terms of choices. No justice in their tracks. And then we have another one. And by the way, Paul stops with the idea of peace in verse 17, the path of peace they have not known. Same idea right out of uh, verse 8. The Isaiah passage goes on, and there is, they have made their paths crooked, using the imagery of walking on a path, going along a highway. The direction of one's life is the essence of the imagery. Everything's crooked. Okay, I'm going to try this. That doesn't work. Okay, I'm going to try that. That doesn't work. I'm going to go here. That's bringing more misery. I do this. Ends in the same depressing way. That's the imagery here. Then it closes the Isaiah passage. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. You come into contact, all you get is conflict. All you get is misery and problems. That's the old nature. That's deadness. Paul takes 16 and actually 15, 16, and 17 out of Isaiah 59. See that? So you could consider in Romans... Another series of parallel statements, synonymous parallelism, reinforcing the idea of total depravity. And that's what Paul is doing. And notice, throat, beginning in verse 13, tongues, lips, mouth, that's communication, but their body parts, feet, And if you go down to verse 18, eyes, notice the emphasis on body parts here. Taken together, our bodies are affected. Remember last time we looked at the throat, the tongue, like an open grave. Remember the imagery that we looked at last time? Lips, mouth, and now we have feet and eyes. All of these are externals, our body, that come out of the body as a result of the effect of the body. So... Depravity touches our body, particularly 315, but you can include all the other verses that include the throat all the way to the eyes, verse 18. So you can include 13 through 18 there. Who wants to look up First John 216? Another description. Got it? Lost of the flesh. Keep reading. What, what was the first one? You had it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Okay, the lust of the eyes. There you have eyes, and the flesh, pride of life. It's not of the Father, but is of the Okay, so our bodies are affected as well. And there's other passages, the degenerating of the body. We don't need to be convinced of that. We see it every morning as we get dressed in the dark. <laughs> right? And what's the hope of the body? Resurrection. <clears throat> Exactly. We await resurrection. That's the only hope. So we just decline. We continually decline. Even though I'm going to reach 100,000 miles on my bike, it's not going to help me one bit. I'm still going to decline. It's only going to prolong the death, right? I await resurrection. So then you get to just sit at home. You'll just get there faster, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Or you could go biking with Ray and get hit by the dump truck he wants to get. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I still have 350 miles before that happens. So, 
There's hope, but in terms of our body, it's a future hope. And it's only in Christ that we have release. In fact, resurrection is release from the old nature. And all that remains is the new nature. And we will spend not only the millennial kingdom in the new nature, but we will also spend eternity without an old nature. Won't that be a glorious time? Yep, that happens or begins at the rapture. And only those that know Jesus Christ have all of these elements of the new nature. The new nature begins the moment we are born in him, and it's a process that finds fulfillment. But it's it's in process right now, so we can say, oh my golly, look, Lord, what you've done, I'm not what I was. And I'm not what I'm going to be. Uh, it won't be, co- won't be completed until that's what glorification is. That's also Romans 8. Glorification is where only the new nature is fully developed. Today, we're in the process of growing in that direction. If you continually grow as a believer, we'll never make it to glorification until we go to be with him. So our bodies are affected. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. That's the product of the old nature. And we could go through the whole Old Testament and see that worked out over and over and over. You can see it in the church. Things degenerate. We're going to see it in the millennial kingdom. But in essence, even on an individual basis, the old nature left unchecked. This is the direction, destruction, destruction of relationships, destruction of of life purpose. This is where people end up apart from Christ. And it's a miserable life. Unbelievers are miserable. They try to satisfy it with money, doesn't bring happiness. Misery are in their paths. And then verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no satisfaction. There's no inward peace, and that spills out in relationships with other people, and destruction results in those relationships. So that's a good place to stop. We'll begin in verse 18. We'll see the cause of their sin. Just a little simple summary statement there, verse 18. And basically, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, there is no, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of a new way of living. There's no fear of that. In other words, total self-centeredness. That's depravity. So depravity affects our spirits, our hearts, our intellect, our volition, our communication, our emotions, our bodies, and all of our actions. That is a description of total depravity. And as I mentioned, not on the list is even our consciences. Paul doesn't touch on that unless I might have missed it somewhere in my exegesis. Let's close in a word of prayer. He wants to do that for us. And the hope is in Christ, which begins the next major section. Closing thought, there's no way man has any merit before God Because every aspect of who we are is tainted by sin. It's only in Christ, in Christ alone. Terry, go ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
just thank you for how you have given us grace, Lord. Your grace, by your grace, we have been saved. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow in that grace, to put away the old nature, and to live in the new nature. Let's pray for your empowerment to do that. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you next week, Lord willing. Mm -hmm.